March 24, 1944. In the small, rural town of Alkaloo, South Carolina, school has finished for the day. Children excitedly prepare for a long afternoon of freedom, playing sports, hanging out with friends, exploring the town's hidden hideouts. Two schoolgirls, 11-year-old Betty June Binnaker and 7-year-old Mary Emma Thames, are no different. They plan to spend their time picking flowers together. They've heard that maypops, brightly colored edible flowers, are in season. Maybe they'll be able to find some growing in the woods nearby. So with one bicycle between the two of them, the girls set off on their maypop mission. They happily wander through the friendly town they both know so well, past the familiar Baptist church, through the green fields of the lumber mill where their fathers work, and across the railway tracks. But as the warm day drags on, their hunt for maypops starts to look hopeless. Their baskets remain empty, and the girls are perhaps worn out from the long hours of walking and riding. Then, just a short distance from the railroad, Betty June and Mary Emma see a boy and girl standing on the grass. The children are watching over their family's cow as it grazes lazily in the late afternoon sun. The boy is 14-year-old George Stenny Jr., and the girl is his eight-year-old sister, Amy. Due to Alkaloo's strict segregation laws, the four children aren't really allowed to be friends. The Stinnies are black, while Betty June and Mary Emma are white. But the girls are young and perhaps don't understand segregation, so they wander innocently over to the Stinnies. Excuse us, could y'all tell us where to find some Maypops? One of them asks brightly. To their disappointment, George and Amy can't help. They shake their heads and simply reply, no. Not wanting to press the question any further, the girls turn around and wheel their bicycle away. They slowly wander back in the direction of the lumber mill, possibly hoping to bump into some other friendly faces who can help them in their adventure. But Betty June and Mary Emma never find the Maypop flowers they set out in search of. That afternoon, the two young girls disappear and aren't seen alive again. What ensues is an American tragedy, a racially fueled witch hunt, and a corrupt criminal trial which ends in the youngest person in the country's history being put to death. But if you believe the alleged deathbed confession of one of the most powerful men in Alkaloo, it is a tragedy which could have been entirely avoided. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of George Stinney Jr., America's youngest citizen to be sentenced to death. It's about the murder of two schoolgirls as they picked flowers one spring afternoon and the witch hunt to find and punish the guilty criminal. It's about the unlawful murder trial that polarized South Carolina 
the rumored deathbed confession of one of the most powerful men in the state, and the efforts to overturn a judge's merciless decision 70 years later. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. By the evening of March 24th, 1944, Betty June and Mary Emma haven't returned home. The sun is rapidly setting and dusk is spreading over Alkalu. It's unusual for the girls to stay out this late, especially on a school night, and their parents are growing worried. Although they consider the small town to be safe, they can't help but think something out of the ordinary might have happened. So when darkness falls and there's still no sign of the girls, the Binnakers and Thameses join forces and head out on a mission to find their daughters. Gradually, as news spreads of the disappearance, hundreds of residents leave their homes to take part in the search. The darkening evening streets of Alkaloo bustle with men, women, and children. Flashlight beams shine over the town's shadowy fields, and the still night air is repeatedly broken by cries of the girls' names. Rumors of the disappearance eventually travel across the railroads and into the segregated Black neighborhood. It's here where the news reaches the ears of the Stinney family. George Stinney Jr. tells his father that he and Amy spoke to the girls just that afternoon. It's possible that he and his sister were the last people to see them alive. Although their conversation was brief, it could be used as witness testimony. George's father listens to the story with interest. He's employed at the town's lumber mill and often works alongside the fathers of Betty June and Mary Emma. So he excuses himself from the dinner table and rushes out to join the growing search. Just like the rest of Alkaloo, the Stinnies are worried for the two girls and pray they'll be safely returned to their homes. However, unbeknown to George Stinney or his father, his interaction with the missing girls was seen by several others, 
and it will be just a matter of time until his position changes drastically from potential witness to murder suspect. By dawn of the following morning, the town is in a frenzy of worry. No one's seen the girls for over 12 hours, and the possibility that something serious has happened to them is becoming increasingly likely. The men and women of Alkalu split up into smaller search groups. George Burke Sr., the wealthy owner of the town's lumber mill and one of the neighborhood's most powerful individuals, leads a party of four. Burke Sr. guides his group to his own land, across fields upon fields of grass and wilderness. He takes the men past his mill and to a patch of woodland several yards behind the town's Baptist church. Here, the land is covered in shadows from towering cypress trees, wild plants grow high, and a ditch snakes through the middle of the thicket. Due to the abundance of trees and the low morning sun, it's hard to see anything clearly. Then, minutes after 7 a.m., a long, shrill whistle pierces the early morning air. Someone's found the girls. Men and women respond immediately, pausing their searches and rushing over to woodland near the Baptist church. They brush through the thick foliage of Burke's woodland to where a group of horrified individuals are standing. There in the shallow, waterlogged ditch are the bodies of 11-year-old Betty June Binnaker and seven-year-old Mary Emma Thames. The young girls are lying on their backs, their skin covered in bruises. Balanced precariously on top of them is their small bicycle. Tragically, the search party is too late. Following the discovery of the bodies, police conduct a search of the area. They conclude that the girls were murdered elsewhere and then dragged into the ditch to be hidden from sight. Whoever murdered them was strong enough to lug two dead bodies through a thick forest. Meanwhile, Alkalu's local doctor, Dr. Bozard, performs a post-mortem analysis. Due to the nature of their injuries, he finds that the girls were attacked by a small, solid, rounded instrument, one roughly the size and shape of a hammer's head. The only consolation Dr. Bozart can offer the heartbroken families is that the young girls were not sexually abused before their deaths. Alkalu is devastated by the loss of two innocent children. Nothing like this has ever happened before in their close-knit community. Almost immediately, the atmosphere of the once-friendly town changes. In their desperation to find someone to blame for their grief, the locals become consumed with bitter suspicion. Rumors and theories on who murdered the girls begin to grow. So when someone mentions that they saw George Stinney Jr. talking to the girls on the day of their disappearance, the gossip spreads like wildfire and the finger of blame is swiftly pointed in the young teenager's direction. It's the afternoon of March 25th, 1944, just hours after the bodies of the girls have been discovered. In a modest company cottage, on the side of the railway tracks allotted to black families, 
Amy, George, and their older stepbrother, Johnny Stinney, are playing outside. As they watch their chickens run aimlessly around the garden, a pair of sleek black cars pull up just feet away from their house. A group of men dressed in smart suits step out. They march quickly and purposefully from the cars, heading straight for the Stinneys. The men try the back door. It's unlocked and swings wide open. They step inside. Frightened, eight-year-old Amy scurries into the chicken coop and locks herself inside. Meanwhile, her older brothers try to figure out what's going on. It doesn't take them long to find out. The men in suits are police officers, and they're here to arrest George and Johnny. For reasons they don't disclose, they believe the boys were involved in the murders of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames. George and Johnny are clamped in handcuffs and dragged back through their small house to the awaiting law enforcement cars. As she watches from her hiding place, Amy cries out to her brother. George, why are you leaving me? George frantically looks over his shoulder and tells Amy to get their parents. As the nightmare plays out, Amy looks at her brother for what will be the final time. Witnesses have told police that they saw George Stinney speaking with the girls and suspect he might be linked to the events that followed. It's not clear why Johnny has been arrested as well. The two boys are taken into police custody where they're separated and interrogated for hours. Fortunately for Johnny, he somehow manages to convince police of his innocence and is released after five and a half hours of questioning. But George isn't so lucky. Perhaps because he was actually seen with the girls, police are certain of his guilt. They're not prepared to pause the questioning until they have a murder confession. The following interrogation of George Stinney Jr. is brutal and by modern standards, unlawful. George is held in a tiny prison cell for hours, alone and forbidden from calling his parents to explain what's happened. As Miranda rights aren't yet in existence, George is denied the chance to speak with an attorney and police officers don't even explain to him what his fundamental rights are. He's grilled by aggressive policemen who continually accuse him of committing the murder. Some reports state that police deny George food and water. They hope that in this weakened state, he'll finally give in and confess. When this method fails, police allegedly resort to bribery. They promise to give George an ice cream in exchange for a murder confession. At just 14 years old and charged with a double murder, it's likely that George is terrified, lonely, and confused. He'd do anything to escape from the torturous interrogation, including confessing to a crime that he didn't commit. What happens next has never been proven as there are no official records for George's interrogation. According to Alkaloo's police force, George Stinney Jr. confesses to the double murder. He apparently informs officers that he followed the girls that afternoon and attempted to rape the eldest. Then, he used a 15-inch long iron pole to beat them both to death. 
Police state that George even gave them specific directions on where to find his murder weapon, although it's not clear if they ever recovered it. No motive is given to explain his crimes. Following his alleged confession, officers release a statement to the local press. They outline exactly what George reportedly confessed to and publicly name him as the girl's murderer. His trial is scheduled for one month's time. After George Stinney Jr.'s arrest, life for his family rapidly spirals out of control. His father is fired from his job at Burke's Lumber Mill, and the family is strongly advised to leave Alkaloo for good, as police suspect violent lynch mobs will target them. The Stinneys are forced to flee town just days after George's arrest and aren't even allowed to say goodbye to their son. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's April 24th, 1944. At the Clarendon County Courthouse, George Stinney Jr. is on trial for first-degree murder. It's estimated that 1,500 individuals are watching the trial. The courthouse is so crowded that many spectators are sent outside. When George Stinney is brought into the courtroom, his skinny body is weighed down by heavy metal chains. The vengeful crowd spit at him as he stumbles past. As he looks around him, the 14-year-old boy must be filled with fear. He's surrounded by vicious spectators who are desperate to convict him and the teenager can't find even one friendly face. At 2.30 p.m., the trial begins. The prosecution team brings their first witness to the stand. It's a doctor from Alkaloo, but not the same one who performed the post-mortem analysis. The new doctor explains the nature of the girl's deaths and suggests both of them may have been sexually assaulted. This is in direct contrast to the official post-mortem report. Even though there's no proof to support this new claim, it's a powerful blow against George Stinney. Sexual abuse adds to the horror of the crime and increases the jury's desperation to punish someone. Next to take the stand is one of the policemen who interrogated George. He possesses the only piece of evidence they can directly link to the boy his alleged murder confession. 
the officer tells the jury that George voluntarily confessed on the night of his arrest. He states that George owned up to both of the murders and even showed detectives where to find the instrument he'd used, a 15-inch long metal spike. Over the duration of the trial, the prosecutors paint George as a violent boy who mercilessly attacked two innocent little girls. Following the prosecution, it's time for George's attorney to take the stand. The defense team should be able to make a reasonable case for George's innocence. You see, every single one of the prosecution's arguments are based on corrupt or tenuous evidence. Firstly, the policeman's testimony does not match with a coroner's report. In the post-mortem analysis, the coroner identified the weapon to be a small, rounded object similar to a hammer's head. This is starkly different to a long metal spike, the weapon the policeman claims George used. While a hammer's head would cause bruising and swelling to the girl's skulls, a metal spike would draw blood and create injuries similar to stab wounds. Secondly, there's no physical proof of George's murder confession. It wasn't taped, filmed, or written down. For all we know, the policeman may have simply made it up himself. However, these are not the arguments made by George's defense team. George's own attorneys are perhaps convinced of his guilt and barely defend him. They don't call a single witness to the stand, refute the claims made by prosecutors, or even try to build a case for his innocence. And so after just two hours, the murder trial is over. The 12 men serving on the all-white jury leave to make their decision. It takes them less than 10 minutes to reach a unanimous verdict. George Stinney Jr. is found guilty of murder. Perhaps due to the horrific nature of the crimes, the jury doesn't merely sentence George to life in prison. They recommend the death penalty. Judge P.H. Stoll agrees, and George is sentenced to death by electrocution. It will take place in just two months. Following the murder trial of George Stinney Jr., South Carolina is plunged into chaos. Although many believe that George is guilty, they don't all support the death penalty. Residents grapple with the horrific idea that a 14-year-old boy is being sentenced to death. Olin Johnston, the governor of the state, is overwhelmed by angry letters of protest. Hundreds of individuals from all sorts of backgrounds, black, white, rich, and poor, beg him to show mercy. Their arguments for George's clemency are varied. Some insist he's too young to die and believe a prison sentence would be more appropriate. They point to a recent case in Paris Island, South Carolina, where a 17-year-old boy was found guilty of murdering an eight-year-old girl. Unlike George's case, the accused confessed to his crime in court. And yet, he was spared the death penalty and given a life sentence. Why the different punishments? Most likely because the 17-year-old was white. Although racism is prevalent during these times, Many people in South Carolina believe the Paris Island ruling should set the precedent for George's case. He too should receive life in prison. 
Other letters warned Governor Johnston about the racial tensions he could ignite with George's execution. As the topic of civil rights is growing stronger by the minute, they worry that a state execution of a black child will lead to further divisions. Finally, there are many who argue that George Stinney is innocent. They can't believe that a skinny teenager could kill two girls, hide their bodies in broad daylight, and attract no witnesses. But no matter how many complaints Johnston receives, he refuses to reverse his decision. George Stinney will be put to death. George Stinney Jr. is executed at 7.30 a.m. on June 16, 1944. His arrest, trial, and death have taken just 83 days. The execution of George is attended by several of Alkalu's residents, including the parents of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, as well as Burke Sr. and his son. When George is asked if he has any final words or wished to speak about his crimes, he just shakes his head. Aged 14 years old, he's the youngest person in the history of America to die by the death penalty. But George Stinney's story doesn't end there. Just a few years after the execution, a shocking deathbed confession allegedly comes to light one which threatens to undermine the entire murder trial and prove George's innocence. It's January, 1947. Almost three years have passed since the deaths of Betty June Binnaker, Mary Emma Thames, and George Stinney Jr. In a hospital in Sumter County, South Carolina, a 29-year-old man named Burke Jr. is dying. He's the son of George Burke Sr., the wealthy lumber mill owner in Alkaloo. It's unlikely that many will mourn his passing. Despite the family's wealth and powerful position in Alkaloo, the Burks have never been all that popular. They've been described as bullies and womanizers, the types of people who think they can get away with anything. However, Burke Jr. is destined to be remembered for something far more macabre. Although no one's able to corroborate it, and his family denies it to this day, Burke Jr. allegedly makes a chilling deathbed confession to an unnamed family member. With his dying breaths, it is rumored that he confesses to the murder of Betty June and Mary Emma. Years after Burke Jr.'s death, one of his relatives, Sonia Edie Williamson, decides to follow up on these rumors. She claims to have confronted Burke Jr.'s son, Wayne, asking him to tell her the truth of what really happened on that fateful day in March of 1944. According to Sonia, the following is how Wayne recounted his father's alleged confession. The two girls came to the Burke residence shortly after speaking with George and Amy Stinney. They wondered if Mrs. Burke would like to join their hunt for Maypops. However, while they were at the house, 
Burke Jr. drove up in his lumber truck. He offered to give the girls a lift, perhaps suggesting he'd take them home or to the nearby woods where they could continue their search. After throwing their bicycle in the back, Burke Jr. helped Betty June and Mary Emma into his truck. Then he drove them away and they were never seen alive again. Sonia will later recount her alleged conversation with Wayne Burke in an affidavit. Wayne, on the other hand, has since denied that his father drove the girls anywhere on March 24, 1944. However, there is evidence which suggests that the Burks may have had something to hide. You see, from the very start, they have been intrinsically linked to the case. Witnesses reported seeing a lumber truck drive past the girls on the afternoon of their disappearance, one which must have come from the family's lumber mill. Just one day later, both of the bodies were found by Burke Sr.'s search party on his own land. It was then Burke who fired George's father from employment at the lumber mill. And finally, Burke Sr. himself served on the grand jury to review the charges set by the prosecutor before watching the execution with his son. This close and constant involvement is certainly suspicious. Were they so invested in the case in order to protect Burke Jr. from blame? Although rumors of Burke Jr.'s deathbed confession spread through Alkaloo in hushed whispers, law enforcement take no apparent action to verify the claims. Seven decades will pass until George's case is finally revisited. And when it is, the shocking truths will be revealed for the world to see. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. It's now 2013. In South Carolina... 24-year-old attorney Matt Burgess is reviewing several old court cases. He's investigating trials from the 20th century which were held in the Jim Crow South and are now considered to have been racially unjust. Burgess decides to take a look into George's case file. It contains several artifacts, including photocopies of legal records, two indictments, a fingerprint card, and newspaper articles from 1944. But despite this wealth of information about the 70-year-old case, Burgess is struck by several unanswerable questions. He wonders, how could a boy of George's size, five foot one and just 95 pounds, beat two girls to death? 
Would he have been strong enough to drag their bodies into a ditch? And how could someone inconspicuously commit such a brutal crime in the mid-afternoon? Burgess suspects that there's something strange about the entire case and won't rest until he uncovers what it is. Over the next few weeks, as Matt Burgess dives further into the George Stinney affair, he becomes convinced that the arrest, trial, and execution were corrupt. Several factors have led to this assumption. Firstly, there's doubt surrounding George's alleged murder confession. The only evidence that he admitted to the crimes came from the words of the policemen who interrogated him. It's likely that George was either unlawfully forced to confess or maybe never admitted to the murders at all. Next, Burgess believes the murder trial itself was flawed. The prosecution brought out three witnesses while the defense didn't bring forward any. Throughout the hearing, there was a total failure to defend George. Burgess also notes with horror that the murder trial lasted a matter of hours and the jury's decision took less than 10 minutes. It's one of the shortest murder cases Burgess has ever encountered. Finally, there's the issue of the omnipresent Burks. Burks Sr. testified as a witness in court, served on the grand jury, was part of the coroner's inquest team, and watched the execution. Why was one family so heavily involved at every stage? Attorney Matt Burgess believes these flaws may be enough to reopen the case, but seeing as it's almost 70 years old and most witnesses are now deceased, he'll need damning evidence to get a retrial. And so, taking a risk, Burgess contacts a reporter at NBC who'd previously run a story about George Stinney. He asks him to air a segment about the case, hoping that publicity might uncover new evidence and witnesses. It's a long shot, but Burgess's gamble is about to pay off. The information he receives could be enough to finally bring justice to the Stinney family. In the weeks following the televised NBC report, attorney Matt Burgess is overwhelmed by calls, letters, and emails about the George Stinney murder case. The responses are varied in opinion. Some claim to have known George as a quiet, withdrawn boy, while others insist he was regarded as the town's bully. Interestingly, a large amount of the responses allude to the rumor that Burke Jr. murdered both girls. Since his alleged deathbed confession in 1947, the theory has become part of Alkaloo's folklore. It's whispered through the neighborhoods of South Carolina and even inspired a novel in 1988 titled Carolina Skeletons. But Matt Burgess can't go to court on the basis of a rumor, no matter how many people believe it. In amongst the responses about the George Stinney case, Matt Burgess receives a startling phone call. An 87-year-old man from Manhattan called Johnny Hunter telephones Burgess and reveals that he was George Stinney's cellmate in 1944. While in prison together, the two struck up a close friendship. George frequently told Hunter that he didn't commit the murder for which he was being charged. According to Hunter, George swore his innocence and repeatedly questioned why they were killing him for something he didn't do. Hunter's testimony could be groundbreaking. 70 years after George was put on trial for murder, there's finally evidence to contradict the confession 
that got him killed. This testimony isn't the only piece of new evidence Matt Burgess uncovers. He also reaches out to George's younger sister, Amy, the girl who was with him when Betty June and Mary Emma inquired about Maypops. Amy is now a 78-year-old retired teacher and has tried to put the horrors of her childhood behind her. However, despite her best efforts, she still remembers the events of 1944 as though they happened yesterday. So after speaking with Burgess, she agrees to testify as a witness if he can get the case to court. With the new evidence from Johnny Hunter and Amy's promise to provide an alibi, the case to prove George's innocence looks strong. Matt Burgess drafts a request for a new trial and hopes that it's time for justice to finally be served. It's January, 2014. In South Carolina, the Sumter County Judicial Center bursts with spectators. Today, lawyers are presenting new evidence about the George Stinney case in the hope that they'll be granted a retrial. Around 100 spectators crowd the small courtroom, and this time, unlike the hearing in 1944, almost everyone is on George Stinney's side. When the judge announces the court's in session, Burgess and his team begin their defense. As the case is so old, they don't plan to prove George's innocence or to pin the murders on someone else. Instead, they hope to show that George was denied his fundamental rights to due process in 1944. This would prove that his execution was unlawful. Burgess's team begin by explaining how George's murder trial was corrupt. They point out that the doctor's testimony disagreed with the post-mortem report, that the alleged confession of George was never proven and has recently been challenged by Johnny Hunter. The inconsistency of murder weapons between a hammerhead and a long metal spike and the physical impossibilities that a boy as small and thin as George Stinney would have been able to murder two girls and drag their bodies through unkept woodland. However, these reasons alone aren't enough to persuade the judge that George's case was unlawful. So Burgess doesn't stop there. He has another powerful card up his sleeve, a witness for George Stinney. Burgess invites George's sister, Amy, to the stand, where she tells her version of events from March 24, 1944. According to Amy's words under oath, she and George were briefly approached by Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames on the afternoon of their disappearance. The girls asked them if they knew where to find Maypops, but both Amy and her brother shook their heads. The girls then walked off and George spent the rest of the afternoon with his sister. He didn't leave her sight all night, making it impossible for him to have been the murderer. Finally, 70 years after his death, George Stinney has an alibi. Now all that's left to do for Burgess, his team, and Amy Stinney is wait. Although they're confident that they've done everything they can, with such an old and controversial case, it's impossible to tell which way the judge will rule. 
Eventually, on December 17th, 2014, almost an entire year after first hearing the case, Judge Carmen Mullins is ready to announce her decision. She explains, From time to time, we are called to look back to examine our still recent history and correct injustice where possible. With regard to George's case, Mullins states that she can think of no greater injustice. George Stinney Jr. is officially exonerated from the murder charge and his execution ruled as unlawful. Judge Mullins concludes that George's prosecution violated his fundamental human rights. Joy erupts across South Carolina. Amy Stinney bursts into tears and screams, they cleared George's name. Catherine Robinson, another of his sisters, tells journalists of her emotion and relief when she heard the news. I threw my hands up and said, thank you, Jesus. Someone had to be listening. It's what we wanted for all these years. Seven decades have passed since George Stinney's unlawful trial and execution. And the question of who really murdered Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames remains. Did Burke Jr. really confess to being the girl's killer on his deathbed? And if he did, were his words honest? or just the ravings of a dying man. Considering the age of the case, it will be hard to ever solve it. Most witnesses struggle to remember key details, and many have taken their secrets with them to the grave. However, there's still hope that the murderer will one day be found. Throughout Alkaloo, families continue to tell George Stinney, Betty Binnaker, and Mary Thames' story and pass it down through the generations. With so much continued interest, maybe someday soon, justice will finally be served. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Noreen Greenlee, a 13-year-old girl who vanished one fall night in 1963. Noreen was waiting for a bus home after enjoying a night out with friends on Saturday, 14th of September. But although the bus arrived on time, Noreen never got on board. Over the following days, weeks, and months, Noreen's small town came together to search for her. But Noreen had gone without a trace. Then, in 2016, a dying man confessed that he knew what really happened to the missing teenager. Over 50 years since her mysterious disappearance, will Noreen Greenlee finally be found? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.
lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.